I remember when I was in high school, it was my junior year, and we had a junior-senior banquet. And at this banquet, it was a formal affair. As you walked in to the entrance of the room, they laid out all the desserts for that evening. They had cheesecake, which I didn't add to the list because I like cheesecake too. They had chocolate fudge cake, which I'm, uh, uh, all right, that's all that's left. They had apple pie and they had strawberry mousse. And I was with some friends and we were eyeing the table all the way in and we thought to ourselves, oh boy, that, oh, that strawberry mousse, that, that looks really, really, really good. But we weren't, but we weren't allowed, allowed to take, take anything. anything. So we, so we found, found our, our way, way to, to our, our table, table, which, which we strategically, strategically uh, ensured that it was close to the dessert, dessert table. table. So, so when the master, master ceremony said, all right, now, now you can get your dessert, dessert, we would be able to make a swift move to that table and knock people out of the way if necessary so that we could get our strawberry mousse. And of course, dinner came, and dinner was good. It was prime rib. So I enjoyed my prime rib, and there was potatoes, and there were some veggies, and I didn't have so many potatoes and so many veggies because I was saving myself for the strawberry mousse. And then the master of ceremony said, it's time for you to go get your dessert. And of course, my friends and I swiftly left the table and went to the table and grabbed that strawberry mousse took it back to where we were sitting, and we began to eat it. And it was empty. It was tasteless. It was void of anything flavorful at all. We had been duped. You've probably heard the expression, the proof is in the pudding. There was a lot of promise on that table. There's a lot of Redness that was screaming at us, oh, this is going to be good. There was fluffiness there in the mousse that was saying, eat me, eat me, eat me. But of course, the statement means, this proof is in the pudding statement, means you won't know if it tastes good until what? Until you taste it. It's a proverb that says one can only claim that something is a success after it has been tried, or used. And to that end this morning, I want us to take a bite out of the favor of God and to see if it measures up. Dennis this morning emphasized the grace of God. God riches at Christ's expense. We are, if we're God's children, the recipients of that grace. But is it all what we think it is? Psalm 34, 8 instructs us to taste and see what? That the Lord is good. Now, we know the answer. He is good. But when we taste, the proof is in the pudding, and God shows us in the pudding that he is always good. In Ezra 7 and 8, as well as Nehemiah 2, this phrase, the hand of God, is running through it. Let me just highlight it for you, at least in Ezra. Ezra 7, 6 says, The king granted him, that's Ezra, all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord of God was on him. Verse 9, 
He came to Jerusalem, for the hand of his God was on him. Verse 28, I took courage, he says, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Then in chapter 8, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. Verse 22, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Verse 31, the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. This hand of the Lord, this favor of God is his grace and his kindness directed through his providence for his children. And that is good in theory, isn't it? But what effect does the hand of God or the favor of God or the grace of God have on his children? In other words, we want to see that the proof of the favor of God will be found in the pudding of life. You might say, okay, you're pushing this analogy too far, Pastor Rod, but I hope you're getting the point here. That the favor of God will show up in our godly living. It's not just something that we receive. It's also that which produces something in us. So this morning, I would like for us to consider this proposition, six evidences that the hand of God is on a ministry or on a, perp- on a person. In other words, what are the evidences of the, of the hand of God or that the hand of God is on a ministry, on a person, on your life. And it's worth noting something here, that these evidences are the fruit of his hand, not the prerequisites to it. And so what we're going to see as we go through this chapter are evidences of the, I would say the fruit of the hand of God on the people of God, and on particular, Ezra and what he is doing. They're all kind of working together. And last week we saw in Ezra 7 that the favor of God was on Ezra in particular. Today in Ezra 8, we want to see the favor of God in Ezra and in the people who are with him. And these evidences will be reminders to us of how the favor of God is at work in our lives because As children, we've received the favor of God, and it is bearing fruit in our life. Just like we read, or was quoted here, Psalm 1. His delight was in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditated day to night, and he began to produce fruit in season. This is the result of the favor of God on the life of the child of God. So let's jump in. I have six of them, and we're going to move through them, hopefully, pretty quickly. But let's work together in this. First of all, what I'm calling a robust faith, a robust or rugged faith. And I I see three aspects here. First of all, the faith to move. Because what's happening here is you have a group of people that are going to join Ezra in leaving Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. When I say go back to, they haven't been there. They were born and raised in Babylon in the Jewish community there. Now, it's not easy leaving the comforts and assurances of a land you've grown up with most of your life. 
Yes, Israel was still in exile. Yes, we could put them in the category of captives. But they had adapted to their situation, and they had learned how to live in the land. They sought to live a full life, seeking to be a blessing to those who had taken them uh, just as God through Jeremiah had instructed them. And this is Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. I'll just highlight it. He says, build houses, plant gardens, take wives, multiply there, seek the welfare of the city where I have placed you. And that's what they did. And the children of Israel multiplied there. But now they're being asked to leave the comforts of that place, the context that they know, the businesses they've established, the lifestyle that they'd experienced, and go to Jerusalem. So their homes, their gardens, their businesses, their family lives, their relationships were all rooted in Babylon, and now they're being given this opportunity to go to Jerusalem. And friends, it takes faith to step out like that. I remember when I left England at 16, I wasn't a believer, but I had a ton of friends. I had a, a, a life. I had you know, soccer teams I was on and, and, and activities that I was involved in and networks that I had you know, developed in the school and stuff like that. There was all sorts of, I had a life there. And leaving there to come here was difficult. Of course, I wasn't here coming to California, of course, which would be everyone's dream, which, by the way, you don't realize it is everyone's dream. No, I landed in Michigan in November, okay? So, you know, it wasn't like one big L.A. where you could skateboard everywhere. It was dirt roads and snow, which is hard to skateboard on if you've ever tried before. It's hard. But this is what they, had, this is what they chose to do. Now, this is all willful. This is all voluntary. They, they were choosing to do this, but it, there's great faith in doing that. Secondly, it's a faith-to-face trials. Not only were they exercising faith to leave, but they're also exercising faith because of the journey. It would be a dangerous journey. It would be uh, uncertain conditions. They wouldn't exactly know what they were running into. This wasn't as large a group as went to Jerusalem about 80 years prior with Zerubbabel. As best we can tell on this return, there was probably... The record here is about 1,500 men. If you add children and wives to that, you're probably looking at about four to 5,000 in this group. And of course, what do you do when you go on a long journey? You're going to resettle. You carry as much as you can of your stuff. How many of you have a lot of stuff, right? And if you ever had to move, you're like, all right, I got to rent a U-Haul or get a company to come get my stuff, right, and transfer it over well, they're carrying their stuff, but not only were they carrying their stuff, they're also carrying gold and silver. And we're, we're told, based on the descriptions there, I'm summarizing here, that the gold and silver, about 25 tons of silver and three and a half tons of gold. Now, they didn't have semi-trucks to pull it. This is going through the desert. This is hard, rugged work. <laughs> so to even think that you're going to get to your destination, it's a daunting task, isn't it? But not only would it be exhausting because of the journey and their own stuff, it's also going to be difficult because of the fact they're carrying gold and silver that they would be prime pickings for any 
any thieves that might be there waiting in the wings for them to come through. Now, we might have a hard time quite comprehending this because we live in a country where, for the most part, there is safety when you're even out in the countryside. But in this context, safety was found in the city and near the city. The further you went out into the wilderness, the more opportunity there were for thieves you know, to track you down and to take what you have. So I'm saying this, this journey was going to be difficult and it was going to take faith not only to leave, but faith to actually go on the journey. But there's something else in this passage, and I appreciate Debbie working so hard at reading through, particular verses 1 through 14. Um, I, I, I have great compassion for those who read and always wonder what the passage is going to be, and they get the one that has these names in it. But there's something going on here. Why would these people join up with Ezra on this return from exile? Well, it could be a number of things. It could be simply they want to be faithful to the Lord, or maybe they wanted to answer a call. We're not given kind of the same description that we, we got in chapter 1 when Zerubbabel, uh, Zerubbabel left, and it was because Cyrus had made a decree, and he said that people could go. We don't have that in the sense of, uh, of the Spirit moving people. We don't have that language, but the language we do have is that repeated refrain of the hand of the Lord. So the Lord was working in hearts. The, the Lord was moving people. The Lord was, was raising people up to go with Ezra. And in this, in this time, in particular, it was to restore the people to the word of God. So we definitely need to give a big nod to God's hand at work in their lives. But there's something else that Ezra wants us to see that we find in verses 1 through 14, and I'm calling it a legacy faith. I'm just going to highlight verses 1 through 14 just by noticing 14 names. These are the 14 household names that are mentioned here. Phineas, Ithmar, David, Shechaniah, Zatu, Aden, Elam, uh, Shephathiah, Joab, Bani, Babai, Asgud, Adonikim, Bigvi. Now, if you take that list and you compare it to the people that left with Zerubbabel 80 years early, earlier, what you're going to find is that of these 14 heads of families, 11 of them are identical. You say, well, what's the big deal? 11 of those families had already gone to establish the homes and the places of their ancestors to help restore the building of the temple and now you have more of their family coming from Babylon to Jerusalem. Just think about that. This is a legacy that has been left because of a family relationship. And who knows, likely those who were in Jerusalem had written back because there was a mail system under the Persian context, written back to Babylon to say, it's pretty rough here, but you should come. And you should come, and you should come. There's a, there's a legacy here of families moving together, trusting in the Lord, saying, make this journey and come and settle in the land. This is the place where Israel wanted to be ultimately. And they could move by faith. Covenant fidelity tends to run in the family, doesn't it? Therefore, we should indoctrinate our kids and lead a godly life before them so that they will follow our example. 
Hopefully that's what you desire for your kids. Hopefully that's what you desire for your grandchildren, even your great-grandchildren. But maybe in being so consumed with the immediate, we're not looking far enough down the road in thinking through the legacy that we want to leave for future generations. This is 80 years later. What's it going to be like when your 80 years are up? What kind of family legacy are you going to leave? Hopefully a legacy of faith. But there's also just this little bit of glimmering hope in this list. I want you to notice verse 2 and what it says. Verse 2, of the sons of Phineas Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of who? David. Bells and whistles should be going off here. It's a subtle thing, but it's a reminder that the lineage of David is still going on. God's promise to bring a Messiah through the descendant of David is there in the background, somewhat silently, somewhat eclipsed by all these events that are taking place, but it's there. And it's right for us then as we go ahead to Matthew chapter 1, where the genealogy of Christ is, we see Zerubbabel and there's no mention of Hattish there, but we know that in between Zerubbabel and Christ, he is silently present as one of the descendants of David that is ultimately going to realize itself in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Friends, when people say, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of stories put together by different men with different ideas, and it's just like all thrown together, it's like, have you even read the scriptures? The thread of Christ is all the way through it. So even the difficulties, the trials, the heavy burdens of life, the promise of a king, a deliverer, a savior, whispers in the background. Some may laugh and, and say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You Christians claim the Lord is coming again, and that will happen soon. So where is he? Why hasn't he come? And the mocking questions and scornful accusations from unbelievers might shake us and cause us to doubt. But we hold on to the promises that have at times seemed unrealized but eventually prove to be true. And this is the wonderful thing about much of what we have in the Old Testament, that God shows us he's keeping his promises. He's keeping his promises. God never reneges on his promises. And if you turn to Hebrews 11, you will see over and over and over again the by-faiths that give testimony to this very truth. So, first evidence of the hand of God is a rugged, robust faith. How's your faith today? I'm talking practically here. Trouble comes, difficulty arises. Are you rooted in your faith because of the favor that you have been given by God? Evidence number two, a willing submission. Now that the group of returnees have been identified by Ezra, he begins to take us 
on the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. But first, he gathers them at the river near Ahava. And for three days, Ezra assesses the people to make sure that they're ready to go. And he finds one glaring problem, and that is there were no Levites. Look, if you would, at verse 15 at the end. I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now, just on a side note, Ahava, some of you may have heard of Ahava before. If you're a lady, you probably heard of it more than men because it's the name of a cosmetic product from Israel. This is a different Ahava. This is one near Babylon, and they're by a river here. And they wait for three days. It's a wise practice, friends. In fact, you'll see this happen twice in this chapter. You'll see it also happen when Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem to He spends three days just observing the condition of the walls. And it's a reminder, friends, that sometimes it's good for us to pause and to rest and not rush into making decisions to take time and to think and to really assess the situation. It kind of goes against the let's get this done now mentality that is so prevalent in the business world. In God's world, sometimes it's right to pause and to rest and to take time to consider. Because friends, the question is this, do you have a clear and right understanding and awareness of what is going on in your family or what's going on in your workplace or what's going on in your church? Be careful not to rush into conclusions and actions. Be sure to take time to reflect and ask good questions so that you can make good decisions based on what you find. Now, There's two issues, really, that need to be addressed here under this heading. Um, The lack of any Levites, secondly, the response of the people. So let's first of all just look at this this need here, this lack of any Levites. You say, well, what's the big deal here? Well, you have to understand, Israel has been living in captivity. And before they were in captivity, the Levites themselves didn't have any land. They had some cities. They were the cities of refuge, but they were not like the other tribes who had this sprawl of land. But they get into captivity, and now they're not functioning within their Levitical system. They're functioning just like another Jew. So even through the generations, the Levites have not been serving in the way that they had been serving before they went into exile and their role and their function was to serve in the context of the temple. So, it's a considerably different situation for them. For them, they have raised families, they've built homes, they've established businesses, they have a life. And now the prospect was to go back to Jerusalem and not only have a a displacement of where they're from, but to have a whole new role and function, and that function being a servant in the context of the temple. Now, can you understand how this might be a hard sell for the Levites to say, yeah, let's go, unless there's something going on in their heart and they're realizing the importance of bringing their gift and their responsibility as a Levite back to Jerusalem to help in the function of what was going on there in the temple. But not only that, One of the things that they needed to do is they were part of the the package, so to speak, that Ezra needed to bring magistrates and judges in Israel, just like Artaxerxes had instructed him to do. We find that in chapter 7. So what does Ezra do? 
Well, he seeks out some men to help him gather the Levites to join him on his journey. You might kind of get the impression that he gathers a thug, a group, you know, this gang of thugs to kind of go and get these guys. And that's not what's going on here. They're going to an area, a place where the the Levites um, are are present. There might be a a leader among them. But from this list of men, they go and they, they cast a vision. They appeal to them on a personal level. This is why Ezra's going back. This is how he's going to restore the Word of God to the people. This is how you can serve God in in this capacity, a capacity you have a name for, but you haven't really had the opportunity to function for. And as a result of that, we're told by the good hand of God, 38 Levites join them along with 220 temple servants, purely on a voluntary basis. There's no coercion here, just an appeal. This is what's going on, and we need you. So this is, the, this is what happens with the Levites. They submit to the vision. They submit to what God is doing through Ezra. Secondly, I want you to notice the response of the people to Ezra's leadership. They respond to Ezra's leadership and guidance. Having joined the group of travelers, they place themselves under his care and are willing to follow his lead. This wasn't going to be simply a rabble group of people going through the wilderness to Jerusalem however they wanted. Can you imagine what it would have been like if there was no leadership and if there was no submission? Hey, Ezra, when we get up to that mountain there, we need to go left. And Ezra's like, no, we need to go right. Well, I don't care what you say. We're going to go left. That's what happens when you don't have leadership. That's what happens when you don't have submission going on. You have people that just do their own thing based on their own feelings and not thinking about the whole. We don't want to stop here by this watering hole. We're going to walk ahead into the night and find a place to stop. You you guys are taking too much time. We don't want to wait for you to catch up, so we're going to go on ahead. No, you have to have leaders that can assess where the people are at and can, can figure out whether the people are exhausted because they're carrying tons of gold and silver. All right, whether the children are able to keep up. All right, leaders help care for the people as well as set the direction for the people. Both are in place. And what happens here is the people submit and follow that leadership. And not only that, of course, they were susceptible to these enemies to attack. And it takes leadership to structure things and to figure things out so that leadership, so those people are kept safe. And friends, just, just hear this. A godly leader in the church, any godly leader in the church worth his salt is going to point you to the ultimate leader, Jesus Christ. And they themselves are going to submit themselves to him. And any good leader is going to listen to the people under his care, to move at their speed, to assess injuries, to assess discouragements and struggles. I think I've shared this story with you before, but I think it's helpful maybe here. My mom, when she was 16 was living in India, um, and this was during the war, and she told me the story one time, just kind of very, very nonchalantly, um, and she got on the, 
the, the, um, the boat in Calcutta, and the purpose of it was an ocean liner to go south, um, below South Africa, and then all the way up across to New York. Of course, this was the time when German U-boats were out. When she got to Cape Town, she got off to South Africa because military said, we are taking that ship and we need to get soldiers moved, and so you just wait here. So three weeks later, another boat came. She got on that boat, and they're going through the, the, um, the Atlantic now, crossing over to New York. And like I said, uh, you know, boats were getting shot down. German submarines were around, and it's like, Mom, what did you... How did you function in that situation? I mean, what, what, what were you doing? She says, well, I trusted the Lord, and I put my trust in the captain. What else can I do? And her point, her, her point was very, very simple, isn't it? Sometimes we're not the ones that can really make any difference. Our role, our function is to follow those who have been given that position of authority and leadership to say, this is what we need to do. But see behind that just the grand hand of God's care. And friends, this is the point. One of the fruits of the hand of God is simply a willing submission to what God is doing, to his vision, as well as to those who have been placed to care for you, to watch over you. Third, the third evidence, a humble prayer. Let's read verse 21 and following. As we're speaking here, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of of God, of our God, is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Did you, did you notice the tension that's happening here? Do we stand on our convictions and ask for protection? Or do we stand on our convictions and simply trust God? See, Ezra reveals the principle that was the basis of his conviction. We read it there. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So his convictions produced in him now this dilemma. Should I ask for a band of soldiers to help protection or protect us? Should I press on without asking for help? And, and what Ezra concludes is, since this is what I've communicated to Artaxerxes, and since this is a demonstration of the greatness of our God, I wasn't going to ask for help. And we might answer quickly, well, if that's your conviction, shouldn't you trust God? Do you believe in God? Do you trust God? So why do you have insurance on your vehicles? Do you trust God when... You get on a plane and there's an unbelieving pilot in the cockpit? Do you trust God when you're going in for surgery and you're pretty convinced that the surgeon is not a believer? Do you trust God? Do you, 
you know, if your children were going on a missions trip to Mexico, would you want them to get vaccinated, have some, some kind of security, or purchase travel insurance? Probably. Now, these are the dilemmas that we are wrestling with in life, right? For Ezra, who was recognizing God's hand, the answer was to not ask for military protection. But friends, this isn't a proof text for us in every situation. Sometimes you will need to trust God without the help of others, and at other times, God provides protection through human means. No shame to lean on others, even if they're unbelievers. The Christian the question that we should be asking ourselves is, are we trusting God? And the thing is that God can provide his care through a number of different means. And I think what's really helpful for us is that when we get into Nehemiah, in his day, he would see the matter quite differently, accepting a military escort as part of God's protection. See, both were attitudes of faith and each in its different way. Romans 14.6 says this, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to, uh, of the Lord and gives thanks to God. But the point there is, we may have convictions, but in different situations, they're going to flesh out in different ways. So what's the answer? How do we move forward? Well, when we're faced with this kind of dilemma, we come to God humbly in prayer, asking for wisdom. We tell him of the situation that we find ourselves in, and we want to be able to proclaim his glory in our circumstances. So then we consider our options in light of God's word. Our time of prayer and our time in God's Word helps to cleanse the heart and mind and to think clearly and biblically about the situation. Then, if needed, we might seek godly counsel to make sure that what we're thinking actually conforms to God's Word because a lot of times our hearts want to do what we want to do and we, we don't pay attention to what we should be paying attention in God's Word. And then ultimately, we choose a path that we believe best fits the Word of God and our desire to please Him and we make a decision by faith. Very well-known verse of Scripture, right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's such a great passage of Scripture, but it's also a very distorted passage of Scripture when people want to do what they want to do. And, and the psalmist there isn't saying, you know, whatever you desire, go do. It's saying, delight yourself in the Lord. And when you do that, he does something to your heart. He changes your heart through his word so that your desires are conformed to his desires and that you leave now, not just doing his desires, but your desires now become his desires. All right, so delighting in the Lord comes before doing your desires. That delight fashions and shapes them. The hand of God is evidenced by our desire to place our concerns before him in humility, seeking his direction. A robust faith, a willing submission, humble prayer. The third one, or fourth one here, is the, a disciplined integrity. 
a disciplined integrity. This is all about the finances. This is all about the gold. This is all about the silver. And it's the longest section in the chapter here, uh, verses 24 through 34. But I want you to know, notice what, what happens here. Ezra sets um, 12 leaders aside to oversee this very important task. And what is the task? Well, we'll find, first of all, it's weighing and counting all the gold and the silver. We might call it checks and balances. The point was that what is weighed and counted at the beginning of the journey should match what is weighed and counted at the end of the journey. You get that? Secondly, they set apart these men as holy. The priests are set apart. They're holy to the Lord. The gold and silver is set apart. They are holy to the Lord. In other words, this is not some menial task, but one that is being done for the Lord because the gold and silver belong to the Lord. And friends, let's not forget that the handling of the financial resources in the church is the Lord's work. From counting, recording, paying bills, spending, balancing accounts, it's all the Lord's work work. The third one here is guarding and keeping, we're told there in verse 29. It was the responsibility of the priest to make sure that no pilfering of the gold and silver was taking place. And such an activity demanded a disciplined integrity to be sure that no gold and silver somehow slipped through the cracks, that no false accusations could be levied against anyone, that what was sent actually arrived. Now, someone might say, well, if you're going to trust God's protection of the people on the journey, why aren't you going to trust God's provision over the gold and silver? Don't you trust the people that you are with? But friends, we might trust God's protection, but we're not foolish enough to forget that leaving a door open for temptation won't usually end well. If they didn't do this, and they carried the gold and silver kind of you know, loosely in bags, where that was before the people. You're setting people up for temptation. It would be foolish to do that. For someone to even think that they could stick their hand in and grab something and put it in their pocket would be foolish. You don't want to put people in that position because sinful heart sometimes can be consuming. So friends, the steps are necessary to protect the individual from giving into that temptation as well as to make sure that the gold and silver are intact. And, and as we kind of move to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 19 and 21, he says this, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. He's talking about the transferring of that money. We seek to honor the Lord, we seek to honor men. So we do things to make sure that when men look at it, they're realizing there's nothing shady going on here. And friends, as a church, it's important that we handle our finances that way, isn't it? Because we've all either been in or seen situations where money is not handled. Just one case in point, you know, of a situation where, you know, offering would be collected, men would be gathered, they put all the money into a plate, and there was one guy who would walk down the hall with money to take it to an office to count. And along the way, he's going, Ch -ch -ch -ch. checks and balances, friends. 
Discipline integrity. The heart of someone who has been affected by the favor of the Lord is going to want to be a person of integrity and want to be disciplined in doing it. And by the way, although we've been talking about finance, this is also necessary in other areas of ministry of church life. Theology. We must be committed to integrity as we talk about the things of theology, the truth of of God's Word. In preaching, slipping in personal motives. You know, if I preach on this topic, maybe they'll do such and such. Maybe they'll like me more. Maybe they'll follow me. Maybe they'll give me more, right? I mean, you can have some motives there. Or it could be like, you know, just preaching someone else's sermons. Relationships. Are you in this relationship because you actually care about this person? Or are you the kind of person that, I remember being in a church where there was a guy who was selling life insurance. Three years in one church, you move on to the next church. Three years in that church, you move on to the next church. He saw church as the, the fodder for his, him to be able to sell life insurance. He'd spend time buttering you up, so to speak, building relationships, spending time with you, and then, oh, yeah, well, I do insurance. Would you like to, you know? That's not what the church is here for, friends. Right, and so on, integrity. And a person who's been the recipient of the favor of God desires a disciplined integrity, right? Number five, last two won't take long, but they're important. An eager worship. What is one of the first places a true-blooded child of God is going to go when they arrive in Jerusalem if they're coming from Babylon? They're going to go to the temple. (laughs) Maybe we don't comprehend it this way, but that was the center of worship. So not only were they coming back to Jerusalem, we're saying not only coming back to Judea, they were coming back to Jerusalem, but even in Jerusalem, they were going to the temple. And they went to the temple there, and they went to offer sacrifices there. Worshiping God at his house was so important to these exiles that they were willing to suffer hardship, danger, and great inconvenience to move back to Israel. And what we have recorded in verse 35 is a one-time celebration for those who had made the journey. It says, at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and a sin offering, uh, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, for them, that was powerful. (laughs) Not only are we arriving in Jerusalem, but we're able to go into the temple. What an incredible experience. What an incredible reality and reminder that their God had not abandoned them. He is still on the throne, and he is worthy of their worship. He had protected them. They had brought their goods. The monies had been distributed as they needed to be, been counted. Everything was fine. We've come to worship you, Lord. This is what a heart that has been affected by the, by the favor of the Lord does. It wants to worship him. Number six, diligent responsibility. Not only were the Israelites to celebrate the journey with burnt offerings at the temple, they're also to fulfill their responsibility to King Artaxerxes, and that responsibility 
was to go about the various towns and villages and places and bring the king's commissions to the leaders, in particular the treasurers in those locations. Back in chapter 7, we're not going to go back there and read it, but Artaxerxes makes some decrees that these people need to read because he's laying out his law for those treasurers who ultimately were to give freely to Ezra for the sake of the temple. And so these are the commissions that go out. In fact, specifically it says, whatever Ezra the priest requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Whatever Ezra's God decrees, let it be done. Right? The temple workers, Levites and singers and doorkeepers are not to be taxed. This is all part of what was sent out by Artaxerxes through Ezra to be disseminated to the treasurers around that region beyond the river. Now, friends, the point here is this, that God's favor is not limited to your spiritual experience. God's favor also extends outside of your spiritual life into the public arena. These were not necessarily followers of God. These were treasurers who, some of them would not have been followers of what the Jews were doing there in Jerusalem. So, we're talking here in our context about responsibilities at work, your responsibilities as a citizen of your community and of your country, responsibilities to your neighbors. Friends, let me just ask you a couple of questions here. Are you living in a self-centered Christian bubble, only thinking about your own life, your own desires, your own problems, your own comforts, or do you look outside of yourself to consider what is happening around you in your community, with your neighbors, among your workers. God has given you a responsibility for both of those things. But sometimes we simply find comfort in the bubble and we're really afraid of what's outside that bubble. This is true for all of us. So, six evidences of the hand of God. We bring things to a close here. If you and I stood before God today and the question was asked, is the fruit of the gospel evident in your life? What would the answer be? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You could add to that list the things that we've just seen here this morning. Are you abiding in Christ so that the fruit in your life comes from the nourishment that only comes from Him? Like that tree planted in the rivers of water in Psalm 1? Or is the perceived fruit in your life coming from your efforts to prove to God your worthiness? Those are two different things. You might give in the offering plate because it's a fruit of your worship of God and his favor on your life and your desire to be obedient to him. Or you can give in the offering plate because you want to be seen. Or something else. Two different things. So friends, there's four things I want to leave us with here. First of all, fruit must be planted. In other words, in this context, in order for you to bear fruit that comes from the favor of the Lord... You have to be the recipient of the favor of the Lord. 
This is fruit that comes from him. So if you're here today, and it's possible for you to be in the context of Gateway Bible Church over time, hearing gospel-centered message, singing songs that proclaim his goodness and his, his, his glorious gospel and his accomplishment on the cross for you over and over and over again, but still somewhat stiff-arming that, and not be a recipient of the favor of God. That's a sad situation, but it's a real situation, friends. Fruit must be planted. Secondly, fruit must be, fruit must be recognized. Can you see the fruit of God's favor in your life? Ezra 8 gives us some questions to ask ourselves, doesn't he? Just kind of going through that list. Do you exercise robust faith in difficult circumstances? Do you willingly submit to God, uh, godly leaders and ultimately to Christ? Do you turn to Christ in humble prayer? Are you disciplined to be a person of integrity? Do you love to worship the Lord with your whole life? Do you see your, your faithfulness to domestic responsibility as part of the fruit of God's favor? Fruit must be recognized. Do you see it? Third, fruit must be distinguished. Can you make the distinction between good fruit and bad fruit? Do you see the difference between gospel-produced fruit and legalistic or man-made empty fruit and not be settled with the latter? You distinguish it. You, you know, you go to some plant, you say, this is bad fruit, I'm not going to eat that one. You pick off the good stuff. You want good fruit. Can you see the difference? Finally here, fruit must be cultivated. Well, how do we do that? If we till the soil of our hearts with the rototiller of God's will or God's word. We allow God's word to break up the fallow ground, to, 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 you know, to, to mix it up and to expose us. It's not fun, but it should be something that we're after because we know we serve a great God who cares for us and wants us to grow in him. So if you fear God when you go to God's word, the issue isn't so much about God, the issue is about you. Not understanding that God wants your best. And that's what he's going to be working for. So allow the word of God to be that rototiller that just tears up the soil, exposes you. Secondly, pull out the weeds through repentance and, and confession. Third, water the soil through submission and obedience and prayer. And finally, allow the Holy Spirit to work freely in and through you. Friends, if you have been the recipient of the favor of God, then you should be producing fruits. This is a passage that gives us an example of that. So I want to encourage you, friends. What kind of fruit do you have? Good fruit? Tasty fruit? You see, the proof of the pudding of your confession is going to be in how you live your life. How you live it for God's glory. Not so much 
you know, do you have this incredible ministry with thousands of people, but are you the kind of person who is shaped and fashioned by the favor of God so that in turn he is growing you in multiple ways, fruit that gives evidence of genuine grace-filled life would help us today to consider these things. Help us, Lord, to be humble and honest, to reflect our hearts, to, to see whether or not we are people who desire to produce fruit, desire to grow, desire to, to make progress, or maybe we just find ourselves being settled and stale. And Lord, this might be a challenge for someone who's been... Um, kind of sitting on the sidelines for a while, needs to get back to the, the core elements of what it means to walk with you. It could be, Lord, a challenge for someone who's, who's just having a, a season of, of darkness and struggle and has been trying so many other things rather than you just to say, Lord, I want to produce the kind of fruit that comes from my walk with you. And Lord, for even those who are walking in faithfulness and, and are growing in maturity, Lord, it's, it's good for us to be reminded that the fruit that we bear is not fruit necessarily that we have any power over in and of ourselves. It comes from tending the vine, from loving the vine, for allowing the, the, the favor that comes through you to work its way out in our lives. So Lord, help us to keep our focus where it needs to be, Lord. To see you as the, the most wonderful Savior that you are. That what you have to say to us, Lord, is not just to, to slap us silly, but to bring life and to bring life that is abundant. And Lord, that we would see you afresh today, even as we gather together to celebrate what you've done on the cross and giving your body, and shedding your blood. That certainly, Lord, was a past event that broke open the door so that we could be saved. But our salvation isn't simply a, a thing in our past. It's the, I might want to say, the beginning, Lord, of, of what you're doing in us and what you continue to do. But Lord, we look back and we're thankful for that. Thankful, Lord, for the way you work in us. Thankful, Lord, for the trials and the struggles you put us through so that the fruit can be seen or the bad fruit can be exposed. Lord, allow us to press on embracing your grace, embracing your favor, desiring to see it flesh out in our lives and how we live, how we think, and our attitudes, and how we speak. Thank you, Lord, for not only giving yourself, but giving us your word, guiding us through it, for the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit that continues to shape us day by day. You are certainly a God who deserves our worship. In your precious name, amen.